May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and redeemer. Good morning. My name is Valerie Bailey Fisher, and I'm here with you this morning as priest associate and also helping out in the atrium sometimes. But I'm also a doctoral student at General Seminary in Church History in the 20th century. Church history of the 20th century. Now, the truth is, the 20th century is in history. <laughs> that was just yesterday, right? <laughs> and so that's actually my research challenge. How do I look at events and be able to tell what are the stories that are actually going to stand the test of time? How do we know an event that we're living in right now is actually going to be something that people remember? Um, over time. Now, one of, the, um, one of the things that I look for is massive and rapid change, or that's what I used to look for. Things that were major important events like World War II or the atomic bomb at the end of World War II. But I have come to a new um, understanding of how to find these important events by not necessarily looking for the big change, but looking at the epiphanies that happened right before that change took place. Now, I began to look at that partly because we're in the season of epiphany and, and always reflecting on what exactly does that mean. In our church tradition, epiphanies mean like sudden knowledge or awareness, something that we hadn't seen before. However, I've had my understanding of epiphany expanded by looking at some of the writings of J. Robert Oppenheimer. How many of you know who that is? He is the, basically the architect of the Manhattan Project and was behind that team of people who put together the atomic bomb. Now, one of the things that uh, happened with Oppenheimer after the bomb, after the all of the horrible things that happened um, after the bomb. He actually did a lecture series, was going around talking, but he wasn't talking about the bomb as much. He realized, especially in the late 40s and the 1950s, some of you might remember that, there was massive change, right? Change happening so much that no one had a language for it. And so Oppenheimer was speaking to this. And one of the things he said was that the science of the atomic bomb was not new. It was not new science. It was all things that were very familiar, things they already knew. But what he learned from that experience was this. What is new is not new because it has not been there before, but because it has changed in quality. I think Oppenheimer's words can expand our understanding of what is an epiphany. In many ways, ep an epiphany is not only a new understanding. It is a new understanding of something old. It is a new understanding of something that is very familiar. Our gospel reading has multiple epiphanies, and I'm going to just re uh, reflect on a few. One of those epiphanies, in our gospel reading has to do with John the Baptist and Jesus. Now, for many of you may not remember, John the Baptist and Jesus were actually 
relatives, possibly cousins. And that means, because it was a close-knit, small community, that John the Baptist and Jesus probably grew up together. They probably were playmates. They probably spent their young adulthood together. It is, it is also, Scripture tells us, that John the Baptist felt this call to be a prophet, and it was always talking about the Messiah that is coming. But we read in today's Gospel, it is very likely that John did not realize that Jesus, his cousin, was the Messiah until the moment he was baptized. So you know what that means? That means that they were probably playing together as kids and John the Baptist being the scene like this very exuberant and excited person might have said to Jesus every so often, you know, the Messiah is coming. And Jesus probably nodded and said, yeah. So at the baptism, John uh, was uh, baptizing Jesus and then he saw the dove come from heaven as the Holy Spirit rests on Jesus. And then he has his epiphany. That cousin, the son of the carpenter, who'd been there the whole time, was really the son of God that he had been looking for. Another epiphany is about Simon Peter. Now, Simon Peter is one of my favorite characters because he's so human. He was always not quite there. He was... <laughs> He was always flip-flopping, you know, he was, uh, he denied Christ, he was always just um, very, not quite stable. And probably everybody knew that about him. But when Jesus approached Simon, he basically gave him a new name. He says, Simon, from this point forward, you will be known as Cephas. Cephas means the rock. I mean, calling Peter the rock might have been a joke or it might have been an epiphany. In many ways, what Peter probably experienced in that moment was an epiphany about himself. He probably was feeling not that great about always not being reliable and being a bit unstable, but Jesus basically opened his eyes up to the possibilities of who he could be, that perhaps one day he could be that solid rock and in many ways, in our church tradition, it is Peter who is a very foundational person in our Christian faith. Now, as a 20th century historian, I often peer through the, the annals of history and I look for not so much the changes, but the epiphanies. And early in my research, I found a very early book by the historian Marty, Marty, Mart, um, Marty Martin who uh, is also a historian of the 20th century. Now, when he was younger, um, he noticed towards the end of the, at the, um, in the 50s, um, he was studying conflict, particularly in our society. And he was studying the racial conflict that was happening and trying to figure out, like many people were in the 1950s, where is this going? The conventional wisdom of the time in the 40s and the 50s was the only resolution would probably result in violence. However, there was an epiphany occurring among the scholars. And you probably don't even realize this because the story I'm about to tell you, I think, will be the one that is familiar but not familiar. So 
What do you think that epiphany was in the 1940s and the 50s in terms of where this might go? That's what I thought you would say. <laughs> it, at, at the end of the 1940s, there was a character who hit the, um, the scene. It was Gandhi. Gandhi w came on the scene in India as there was the struggle of decolonization of India, but Gandhi presented a nonviolent option, a nonviolent option. And for the historians and the sociologists, they're like, wait a second, that could be interesting. Then another thing happened about the same time that caught the sociologists by surprise. The mainline churches, the mainline churches in the United States that are normally just very staid, and remember the 1950s, some of you? It was very proper. The sociologists in this book were saying a strange phenomenon is happening. The Christians and the mainline churches are paying attention to the social conflict. And they are also thinking through nonviolent options. Who better to do that than the people who claim to be peacemakers? But this is, this is our DNA now. We know this story. We live this story. But there was a time before the changes before the civil disobedience that was nonviolent, before the marches, people didn't know what to do. But there was an epiphany that perhaps the solution is not one of violence, but one of nonviolence. Now, what's really fun about this book is they're trying to figure out what the future is, and they list three names of potential leaders of the American Civil Rights Movement. And of those three names, they did not include Martin Luther King. Be because he was a minister, because they had completely discounted what the church could do, and they were just looking for more or less activists. But later on, they say, you might want to keep an eye out on that Martin Luther King person. <laughs> you know, he seems like he's doing some very good things. <laughs> and so for what I take away from our stories in history is we, especially in the Episcopal Church, are really nervous about change. We are kind of anticipating. We know something's coming, and we're waiting for s the furniture to move or something to move. But the truth is, instead of looking for change, we should be looking for epiphanies. We should be looking for that change in something familiar, that change in quality of something that we've known for years, but all of a sudden, we're looking at it differently. I would say that as we're in this very uncomfortable, not sure time, instead of worrying about the change, we should be looking for the epiphanies that the Holy Spirit is giving to us. Who knows? Who knows what insight may come? Who knows how we now are looking at the things that are familiar? That is actually where the answer can be found. And so our challenge for the church in the season of epiphany is to look for the epiphanies. Our challenge is to actually just let it rest about the changes, but actually look forward to what the epiphanies may reveal. Who knows? We might be sitting in the midst of the answer and not even know it. But just like John looking for the coming Messiah, what he did was he was faithful. He was faithful to his message and he was faithful to listening to the Spirit. 
so it is for us as well to do. Not to be afraid, not to worry, but with great anticipation and hope, wait for the epiphanies that the, the Spirit will bring to us. Hear what the Spirit is saying to God's people. Amen. <laughs>